Today on the podcast, we're going to be exploring Romans chapter 5, the second part of Romans chapter 5. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Welcome back, guys. Okay, so uh, as of lately, if you haven't noticed, a lot of my podcasts, well, first of all, I haven't been posting much at all for the past year, okay? And then the ones I've posted have all been sermons. Uh, This is a sermon that was recorded at Calvary Chapel, Berthoud in Colorado. I am the associate pastor there. Uh, I'm not the lead pastor, thank God, Uh, but I do preach the Sunday sermon every other Sunday. So that has uh, kept me busy. Along with that and many of the duties that go along with being an associate pastor, as well as running a small business out of my house, I have been buried. Now, having said that, uh, I have just hired somebody part-time and that has freed me up. I'm hoping and praying that this is going to allow me to post something, hopefully at least once a week, and uh, as well, I'm, I'm really hoping to start posting the podcasts that are more of my passion, which is in the realm of worldviews and apologetics. I've already sent out a couple different invitations for uh, various guest speakers. One of them has come back, and so it looks like we will be uh, talking about the Word of Faith movement and the New Apostolic Reformation from kind of an interesting perspective uh, coming up in the future, as well as I have been working on uh, a topic that I have avoided for years And those who have been following this podcast for a long time will recognize this one right away. Uh, I have been looking into the topic, the debate between Calvinism, Arminianism, and this other doctrine, the doctrine of concurrence, or sometimes referred to as the doctrine of confluence. Um, I had to do a very in-depth study when I was going through the the, the chapter, Romans chapter 9, Obviously, today you're going to be hearing from Romans chapter 5. That means this sermon was actually recorded about six to eight months ago. It was a while ago. Um, And so since then, I've made it through Romans chapter 9. That really challenged me. I realized then that there was really no getting around this topic. I had to hit it head on. Okay, so I'm thinking, since I've already put about 100 hours into studying this, I might as well go ahead and put together a series, one of those solo series, um, where I talk about what I found. And whatever side of the debate you fall on, this is not an essential doctrine, okay? So we can all, at the end of the day, uh, still be brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope. Uh, But no doubt about it, I know, because I've heard from a lot of you, that I actually have a ton of listeners that are uh, very much in the Calvinism camp, and I have a ton of listeners that are very much in the Arminian camp, and I've even heard from some of you that are are more of the confluence slash concurrence uh, camp. And so uh, I'm going to make some people angry, but I'm, I want to do it in humility and love and tactfully. Uh, I just want to show you what I found and uh, see if we can't figure this out 
with the whole of the scriptures. So um, we will be exploring that, God willing, sometime in the future, near future, hopefully. And so anyway, with that today, we're going to be going through Romans chapter 5. It is, I believe, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And so with that, let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, And today, I'm going to be in the book of Romans uh, chapter 5. So we've been going for a little while. And as a review, uh, Paul wrote the book of Romans. He wrote it to a very young church in Rome that had very little uh, theological training. Okay, so here we have a church in a pivotal place. Can you not hear me? Check, check, check. We're good? I'll talk talk louder. Um, We have a a young church in a pivotal place and in a pivotal point in history where there is a unified language uh, uh, a location where all roads lead to Rome. We've got uh, the Roman military had conquered much of the world at that time. So it was just a perfect spot for the gospel to go forth. And none of the big boys of the faith had been there yet. So uh, Paul preempts this and writes this letter to the Romans. And it is uh, the most thorough um, exposition, if you will, of the gospel and what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to be saved. So he starts off first couple chapters of Romans, and uh, he is first going to prove the point that, you know, and he's got a Gentile audience listening, but he's also got a lot of Jews listening, okay? So he's going to make the point that the Gentiles obviously are not saved, right? They can't save themselves. They got issues. Then he moves to the Jews and says, listen, you guys have your law, you're following the Mosaic Law. You're eating according to the dietary guidelines. You're observing the feasts. You're doing all these things, but you can't save yourselves either. Through following the law, you can't save yourselves either. And he kind of concludes with the point, there is no one good. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? Uh, then he moves on to this section on justification. And today we're actually going to finish that section on justification. Finally, we've been talking about it for a long time. Justification, again, is, is something that happens instantaneous. The moment at which we trust in Christ, we are saved. We're justified. Okay? If we die a second later, we're good. We're covered. Our sins have been covered. They've been blotted out. And so today we're going to finish that section then next time we're going to go into a section on sanctification. Totally different. So many people, so many different groups get these two terms mixed up. Sanctification is a process. We still have sin in our lives. We got to deal with this. Um, And the Holy Spirit helps convict us of our sins and helps us to cleanse that junk out of our life. That's sanctification. So we're all in that process. We're not all like walking sinless free, right? We've got issues, you know. I don't, but the rest of you guys have a lot of issues. And, um, <laughs> but uh, no, that's, that, and that's going to be something we're going to just touch on just a little bit at the very end of this teaching. We're going to just cross over into chapter 6, just a tad for one verse. Uh, but mainly we're going to finish off this idea of justification. Today is uh, kind of a, a different section. And as we've um, gone through the book of Romans thus far, there's been a lot of uh, questions or objections that Paul anticipates and then answers, right? It's almost like he's having a debate, but there's nobody there to debate him. But these are all questions that I'm sure he's heard, and he's trying to 
preempt them and put it in this letter. So today is no different. The big question that he's looking at is, how can one man's sin cover all the sins of the world? You know, and to a Jew, that would be kind of a, what? You know, th that's a big burning question. And that's what he's going to be dealing with today. But um, as Paul does, he's, a, he's an expert in the law. This guy is a scholar of scholars. He's going to take us, uh, as usual, he's always referring back to the Old Testament. And he's citing uh, examples that the Jews can't deny, right? He's taking them back to the word and saying, look, this is how we know that what I'm saying is true, you know? Um, in fact, Acts 17.11, uh, the, the Bereans were shown to be noble, more noble, because they searched the scripture daily to find out what Paul was saying was so, right? Well, Paul's going to take us back to the scripture, and, and as a, a little rabbit trail, which I'm always famous for my rabbit trails, um, I think that's a good example for us, too. If you have some theological point you want to make, how do you do it? You go back to the scriptures. You prove your point from the scriptures. You don't make an emotional appeal like, you know, well, my God would never send anybody to hell. Well, that sounds really touching, but what does the Bible say? You know, let's go back to the scriptures. Or, you know, my God would not condemn something as sin, like uh, love between two consenting adults, even if they are of the same sex. My God would never do that. Well, what does the Bible say? Amen. Let's, not, let's not, you know, come up with opinions. Let's look at what the Word says. And the Word is pretty clear on that issue. There's so many things. Bible prophecy. So many people that say, God told me this, God told me that. Well, can you prove it? Can you go back to the word and show me from the word where what you're trying to prove to me is true? You know, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Well, it didn't work out very well, now did it? So uh, anyway, point made. <clears throat> Paul's going to do that today. He's going to go back, and um, like I mentioned last time I taught, he's going to look at Adam and Jesus. And uh, as we're going to see, uh, Adam and Jesus, uh, Adam's kind of a, a type of Christ. Uh, and I don't mean that in some weird New Age sense, so I'll, I'll explain that as we go. But Adam is kind of like a type of Christ. And I'm talking about you, Adam. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just shaking his head. No, no. Um, wow, train. <laughs> wrecked. Um, Adam is, is kind of like a type of Christ. And we're also going to see this concept of uh, federal headship that... Uh, Adam was like a federal uh, uh, representative of all of mankind. And Paul is going to compare and contrast Adam and Jesus to teach us about justification and kind of put the final nail in the coffin as far as justification is concerned, what, you know, what that really means and how that works. So just like Adam brought all of us down into sin, just kidding, I <laughs> just look over at you. Just like Adam brought us down into sin, Christ is going to bring us out of this. He's going to be that solution. So by pointing at the one who, uh, in a sense, federally kind of rooted for everybody, Christ is going to be the one that is able to reunite us with our Father eternally. So, um, moving on. So let's go ahead. We'll open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. 
go to verse 12. Uh, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. So before the fall, we got a big rabbit trail coming up here, but before the fall, the world was perfect. There was no death. There was no suffering. And Adam, uh, he sinned in the garden, right? And when that happened, Adam was a a perfect being. He was sinless. Uh, When he did that, something really drastic changed, and it changed for all of us. Uh, There was a point at which, when he sinned, um, he took on a sin nature, okay? And that's something that we all now inherit. We inherit this sin nature through Adam. This sin nature affects everything about us, our mind, our body, our soul, our spirit, uh, our thoughts and emotions. They're all touched by this sin nature. And we can't help but have somewhat of a drive to sin. Not a one of us, well, just like Paul already proved earlier, there's no one good. No, not one. We all have these issues. Um, And that's something that we inherited through Adam. Um, And and it's, it's something that if somebody was to die without Christ, they've got some serious problems, right? Um... Now, not only, not only was uh, uh, Adam perfect, here's the rabbit trail, not only was Adam perfect before the fall, the creation was perfect before the fall. And I've touched on this a little bit, um, but we see that through Adam, death was introduced to the world. Well, if the world was really millions and millions of years old, um, when we look at this geologic column and we see supposedly millions of years of layers, and we're seeing millions and millions of layers of death and suffering and disease, and that supposedly happened, supposedly, I always mess that up, supposedly happened before Adam came around, we've got a problem, right? That means our Bible's wrong. No, it's not. No. Uh, And actually, there's many good creationists out there. Actually, might as well bring it up. I've uh, been talking to Russ about it. We've got so many neat things that we're, uh, God's pouring into us. We're really excited, if you couldn't tell from Russ this morning. But uh, one of the things is I, I'm looking into um, having a, a creation evolution conference here at the church. Is anybody interested in that? Yeah. Is, um, with my podcast, I've got lots of really cool connections, amazing uh, creationists out there, big names, awesome credentials. We can Skype them in, because we ain't got the money to buy them in. We can Skype them in, they can give a talk, and then we can even go back and forth with them and ask questions. How cool would that be? So, I'm pumped. Fun days ahead, seriously. Um, train wrecked a second time. Anyway, yes, you know, if, if there are millions of years in the geologic column, if the Earth is millions of years old, and we have pain, death, suffering, disease, before the fall, we have a major mistake in our Bible, which means it's not inerrant. Well, we all believe the Bible is without error. And you can look at the creation, and you can actually see that God did create it, and the earth is a lot younger than people think. So, well, more, about, more on that as we go. But 
when Adam sinned, he kicked off something that um, on this planet, so many different things. We have uh, sin nature. We now all die. Uh, and um, there, there is um, a creation that is broken. It's winding down. You know, things are decaying. In fact, there's uh, the second law of thermodynamics. I, I threw this word out last time, so I wanted to weave it into this sermon because I didn't explain it. Entropy. I, I just, sometimes I drop words, and then Danielle's like, you said that, and then you didn't explain it. Everybody was probably like, so it, it basically, entropy is, it's the second law of thermodynamics, easy for me to say. It, it's just saying that everything's winding down. That's kind of the easy way to say it. We're going from order to disorder, um, and you can see it everywhere you look. Uh, the older I get, I'm seeing entropy on the top of my head. Um, all the hairs are moving from their once glorious home and they're moving to other places like my back, my ears, and my nose. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but no, it, it, in fact, if you, it, um, Adam could probably attest to this, but there is um, a new uh, term, new studies that are, are being conducted in genetics because they're finding that our genetic code is getting worse and worse and worse, not better and better and better. So uh, they call this genetic load. You know, with each successive generation, your kids have a certain amount of mutations. None of them are beneficial, by the way. They're all detrimental in some way, shape, or form, but they're really small. But then they pass that on to their kids, and their kids add another little chunk of mutations. And it, those, that load of genetic mutations continues to get worse, 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 and worse. And now scientists, some of them are studying this field going, we are running into a problem here because before too long, we're going to have genetic death, if you will. We're going to hit a point at which our human race cannot really sustain itself. Of course, we as Christians know that Jesus is going to be coming back. We're going to get new bodies. Hopefully the hair will move back to the top of my head <laughs> and, uh, and he'll fix creation. So all that to say... Uh, through Adam, he brought in the fact that we now have a sin nature. We now have death in the world, eternal separation from God, um, and the, the creation is broken. Uh, so moving on, go to verse 13. All that from verse 12. Um, we're going to speed up here, I promise. Uh, verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is, who is a type of him who is to come. And so um, we see then, uh, even though sin was not imputed, as the word says here, before the law, um, death still reigned. There was still death and suffering in the world. Um, something else that I already pointed out before, but it's, it's worth mentioning again. He does say, uh, death reigned from Adam to Moses. One of those things people don't catch there is Paul saying here that he thinks Adam is a literal person. There is an, a literal historical lineage that goes from Moses back to Adam. And again, some churches want to make Adam kind of a, a figurative, uh, non-historical person for the purposes of, of blending evolution with our faith, theistic evolution. They want to kind of 
say Adam was not a real person, because if you had Adam as a real person, well, you've got millions and millions of apes running around, and then suddenly just one of them was kind of Adam, and one of them was kind of Eve, and, you know, from there, it, it, it doesn't work. The creation story completely falls apart when you add evolution to it, so... I am sorry about all the rabbit trails here, but there's just stuff. When you're talking about Adam, you can't help but throw a few of these things in. Um, also, I mentioned Adam, and this text says it, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And that brings into um, this discussion something that is really fun. Uh, if anybody has ever taken some time to look into this, the types and shadows that are in the Bible... Uh, are you guys familiar with this, this idea? There's all kinds of uh, uh, people, um, uh, uh, different ceremonies, uh, the temple, stuff like that, that I'm not describing this very well. We'll start with people. There are people in the Bible that their life story um, is prophetically giving us an illustration of Christ or some other biblical truth later on. How about that? Okay, there are feasts in the Old Testament that all in one way, shape, or form in amazing, like hair on your arms raising up ways point towards Christ and his ministry, both his first coming and his second coming. It's awesome to look at these. I did, I did several series on types, of, types and shadows in my podcast um, that I really wanted to listen to before coming up in here and teaching, but because uh, I did it so many years ago, and I forgot half the stuff I talked about. But there, uh, the Bible is filled with these, and there is kind of this um, prophetic nature in these types and shadows, where you you almost can see the divine inspiration of God's word and also His hand on certain people's lives, orchestrating their lives, so that we could see these illustrations in these Old Testament stories that come to. Uh, um, help us understand New Testament truths. And Adam is one of those. Um, just as a few illustrations, I, I threw a couple of these together because they're kind of fun. Uh, we all know about the, the brazen serpent, right? Moses lifted up that serpent on the pole, and we see there in the New Testament, uh, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so that would be a short one. Here's a couple that are really fun. There's so many of these. But uh, how about Joseph? Joseph was a type of Christ. Check this out. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it word for word. Uh, Joseph was beloved of his father. So was Jesus. Joseph was sent unto his brethren. So was Jesus. Joseph's brethren refused to re receive him. So did the brethren of Jesus. Uh, Joseph was sold by his brethren. So was Jesus. Joseph was unjustly accused and condemned. So was Jesus. Um, Joseph was buried in a, in a type of prison. It was kind of like burial. He was put in prison. So was Jesus in the tomb of Joseph. It gets a little more fun when you add the next line. Joseph was resurrected from this prison and exalted to sit with Pharaoh on his throne, Jesus was resurrected from the grave and exalted to sit on his father's throne. Pretty cool. Joseph on, um, Joseph on the throne became the dispenser of grain, bread, to starving Egypt. So Jesus on his father's throne is the bread of life for a, uh, for a perishing world. Uh, after Joseph was exalted, he got a Gentile bride. So Jesus will get a Gentile bride. 
the church. After Joseph got his bride, his brethren suffered famine and came to him for grain. So after Jesus gets his bride, his brethren, the Jews, will turn to him during the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, for relief. Joseph knew his brethren the first time, but they didn't know him. Jesus knew his brethren when he came the first time, but they didn't know him. Joseph made himself known to his brethren when they came the second time, so Jesus will be recognized by his brethren, the Jews, when he comes the second time. Um, Joseph establishes uh, his brethren and their families in the land of Goshen, so Jesus will reestablish the Jews in the land of Palestine. So that's just some of them. There's, there's so many more. I also grabbed one on Isaac, because this one was kind of fun too. Uh, Isaac was a type of Christ as well. Um, both Isaac and Christ were children of promise. The birth of both of them was pre-announced. Um, both were named before their birth. Uh, both of their births were miraculous. Um, Sarah was barren, and Mary was a virgin. Both are called an only son. Both were mocked and persecuted by their own kindred. Uh, neither Isaac nor Christ had broken the law that they should be offered up because Isaac was before the law. <laughs> okay? Um, as Isaac carried, I, oh, Isaac carried his wood that he was going to die on, Christ carried his cross that he was going to die on. Uh, Isaac went willing, willingly to the altar, so Christ went willingly to the cross. Uh, both apparently given up or forsaken by their father. I think I should have left that one out because that kind of, mm, yeah, okay. Um, both rose from the place of their death in a, a type of resurrection. So awesome. And these things, they're all over the Old Testament. Like I said, the feasts will make your hair stand up when you see how they point towards Christ. Um, even how uh, the tabernacle and the temple were built. John Corson, that you mentioned this morning, uh, that part of one of your devotionals. John Corson, he's a Calvary Chapel pastor somewhere in the east. I think Oregon? I don't know. He's somewhere over there. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> ah, yeah, it's okay. The teacher has no idea where he's at. Um, he had an awesome teaching on the symbolism of uh, the temple and the tabernacle. Unreal. It went on for probably about five or six parts. So there was like a good six or seven hours. And you're like, what are you going to talk about? You know, it's all like measurements and different uh, pieces and, and uh, the materials that were used. And you're, you're thinking, this is going to be the most boring thing ever. The whole thing was awesome. It was like, wow, I had no idea there was so much that went into this. Uh, so yeah, I checked that out. Uh, type and shadow, big time. So anyway, types and shadows, they give us insight into New Testament teachings. Um, Augustine said it this way. He says, the new is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. Did you guys catch that? Old being Old Testament, new, New Testament. The new is in the old contained. The old is by the new explained. And so there's so many amazing truths that are in the Old Testament that a lot of times you read over them and you don't quite catch something, but it's starting to give an illustration, a picture, picture that in the New Testament is fully realized and you're going, wow, okay, 
The same God that wrote the Old Testament is the same God that wrote the New Testament. So, um, a couple reasons why this is important. Um, one, you know, it, it helps us understand the New Testament better. But also, um, I think with these types and shadows, the, the Jew who is observing these things, and they know their Old Testament really well, get, gets uh, presented with the New Testament, hopefully with an open mind, reads it, and they suddenly realize, this is the, this is the piece of our faith that we've been missing. This is what we've been missing, and it's critical. So, moving on. How is Adam a type of Christ? Well, we're going to continue on here. We're going to see. Um, and this is, this is interesting. Um, this is going to be somewhat in, I don't want to say that, chiastic form, but I don't want to explain that. We have, starting in verse 15 and going uh, all the way to the end of verse, um, a little bit further, I think 18, we're going to see... Um, kind of this comparison between Adam and Christ. In Adam we get, but in Christ we get. All right? And so that's, that's the pattern we're going to follow here. So in verse 15, the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, we're talking about Adam, one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Okay, so in Adam's one act, we were eternally separated from the Father, and in one man's act, Jesus, we were once again reunited with our Father eternally. And so, uh, verse 16, and something else I want to uh, just note, this is clearly on my part beating a dead horse, but... Over and over, you're going to see Paul refer to justification as a free gift. If there's anybody left here that doesn't quite grasp that, this is a free gift. You don't work for it. When we get into chapter 6, we're going to see sanctification, and that's where we've already achieved, back off, not achieved, we've received uh, justification, and now we move into a process of sanctification where God's going to clean us up and get that junk out of our lives. So um, just notice that, free gift, over and over and over. It's a free gift. So verse uh, 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So on one hand, in Adam, we have condemnation, Uh, leading to uh, judgment. In Christ, we have a free gift leading to justification. Verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more than, let me try that again, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Okay? So in one man... We have death. Through Adam, we have death. In Christ, we have life. We have life eternal. Um, Verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And so again, we, we see... and. There's this form here where uh, you'll see that, like, verse uh, 15. 
he's talking about death and life. Verse 16, we see judgment versus justification. 17, we're back to death and life. Verse 18, judgment, justification. See that, that pattern that's happening there? Um, something that's interesting there, uh, some people will use this passage as a justification uh, to believe in what's called universalism. Um, it says, uh, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. So is that saying that uh, all people are saved? All people? Atheists, Satanists, everybody? <laughs> is that what that's saying? Um, there's a lot of people that have latched onto that and a couple other scriptures that are like it to teach this idea. And it, again, it's referred to as universalism. Uh, in fact, what's really weird, uh, in Roman Catholicism, traditionally, they, they taught that, um, like the Council of Trent, if you believed in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you were accursed, according to the Council of Trent. But recently, you know, popes are infallible, infallible, air quotes, uh, they completely turn that on its head. And now the current pope is saying the exact opposite. And he's, he's teaching a very universalistic uh, message. Uh, recently he came out and said this. This is, this is crazy. He says, The Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us, with the blood of Christ. All of us, not just Catholics, everyone. Father, the atheists, even the atheists. Everyone. And this blood makes us children of God of the first class. We are created children in the likeness of God, and the blood of Christ has redeemed us all. That's what he said. That, that's uh, our current, not our, strike that from the record, the current Pope. Um, so is that what the Bible's teaching? Uh, no, <laughs> it's certainly not. We have other scriptures that clearly say that that is not what's being taught. We have like, uh, for example, John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come unto judgment, but is passed from death to life. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Mostly, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, see, here's the word unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, so scripture, there's a ton. There's a ton of scriptures that show that this is, this is not universalism. Uh, it is in trusting Christ alone. Um, okay, so why the word all? How do we, how do we get around that word all? Because it, it is kind of problematic. Well, if you look up every time that that word all is used in the New Testament, you find many different examples where all doesn't really mean all. So it's a little bit more elastic. All can mean some or all. I know it's kind of hard to work with, but uh, you know, I, I found a few that I thought I'd list off for you, just so you can kind of see this. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 5, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, speaking of uh, John the Baptist, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So, you know, did every last person in Judea and Jerusalem go down to get baptized? No, no, they didn't. Uh, another great example. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. 
Is that saying that my vertically challenged wife can dunk a basketball? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, that's going to be a problem. No, and, and through Christ, yeah. I mean, I, anyway, I don't want to uh, uh, diminish what's being said there. But clearly, all doesn't truly mean all universally. Okay. So, all that to say, when you come to scriptures like that, you need to apply a little bit of hermeneutics. You know, hermeneutics, it is, it is the study of interpreting God's word, rightly dividing what's being said. You're looking at what the author said, and you're trying to draw out exactly what was intended. And, and if you apply what's called the, the harmony of scripture principle, and I've got a podcast on this, if anybody's interested, like a whole series on hermeneutics and how to read your Bible and divide what's being said. Uh, the harmony of scripture principle states that well, we all believe that the Bible's inspired by God. It's inerrant. There are no errors. So scripture has to fit with scripture. It has to harmonize. And if we already got a pile of very explicit scriptures that clearly, clearly say that not everybody is saved, I mean, for goodness sakes, why would hell even be mentioned in the New Testament if everybody was saved? Now, if we got a pile of scriptures that are explicitly saying that, let's not take one verse here or there and come up with a whole new doctrine. They have to fit, right? All right. So what we're seeing here then is going back to this idea of federal headship. In Adam, he is like a federal head in that all who are in Adam, who here is in Adam? Everybody. We're all descendants of Adam. In Adam, we all inherited death and a sinful nature. That's what we get, okay? In a sense, he's that federal head. In Christ, who's in Christ? He's a federal head too, but who's in Christ? Well, those who are trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins. So things got a little more narrow there, didn't they? In Christ, as our federal head, we receive justification. That's what's being said here. So verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Obviously, uh, the one who was obedient was Jesus. Um, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so through all of this, uh, again, Paul's anticipating what his Jewish listeners are going to be thinking. And at this point, they're listening to what he's saying, and they're saying, okay, so um, if sin and salvation are not centered in the law, what's the point in the law? And this question's actually come up multiple times in this book already. And Paul answers it again. Through the law, we're able to see how utterly sinful we are. We're able, we are, that it illustrates, it brings to light our sinfulness, our need for a savior. The very fact that we cannot earn, we cannot attain our own salvation for ourselves. Okay? Uh, And now there's this chapter break. We're moving from chapter five to chapter six. But the chapter breaks are not in the original text, right? It's not like, you know, the, the beginning of your next you know, the next TV show in your favorite series. Not that any of you guys watch TV, right? Bunch of heretics. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, so he's, he's moving on to, to verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. And, and I love this. I just want to point this out. Here's what he says. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Question mark. Of course, the question mark wasn't in the Greek, but question mark. Um, what, what's, what, what's being said there? Well, okay, so it's now a conclusion. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a foregone conclusion. So should we just sin all the more? Because, hey, God's awesome, and if we just keep sinning, he'll just be that much more awesome? And he's going to answer that next time I teach. I ain't telling you. No. But uh, the point is, it's now a foregone conclusion. We've, we've passed from the subject of justification. It is by grace through faith. Okay, and now the, now the next burning question is, well, gosh, if, if it's by grace through faith, well, hey, let's find a new way to praise God by doing bad things, you know? Let's sin so that God makes himself look even better. Paul will address that next time, and I know that you guys know where he's going to go with that. Um, so, you know, that, that pretty much sums it up, guys. If there's anybody here who is struggling with sin... Well, you're in good company, right? We're not saved by walking a sinless life. We can't. We're not saved by getting baptized. We're not saved by getting uh, uh, circumcised. We're not saved by observing the law. We're not saved by avoiding sin. We're saved by what Christ did on that cross 2,000 years ago, dying on our behalf. Now we get to enjoy the process of God cleaning up the junk out of our lives, but if there's anybody here struggling with that, no. By trusting in Christ, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Okay, guys. Well, we will cut it off right here. Uh, thanks for listening, and I love you guys. I will see you next week. <laughs>